The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Genesis, and today the next passage we come to is Genesis 31, 1 through 20. It says, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from, your hand, from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care for me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord go on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of the Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Sakoth and built him a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of that place was called Sakoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Panan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he pitched his tent. And he erected an altar and called it El Elohim Israel. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Jen. Let's pray. Father, we pray according to Isaiah 55, that as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so would your word be this morning, that it would not return to you empty, but would accomplish that which you purpose and succeed 
in the thing for which you sent it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think it's safe to say that pretty much all of us have been involved in conflicts with others at one time or another. And it's almost impossible to overstate the misery that conflict often brings, especially when things get heated, Uh, even though we might sometimes find momentary satisfaction in venting our feelings at those who have upset us, conflict as a whole is pretty miserable. Not only that, it's also exhausting. Um, Between the significant amount of energy uh, that it takes to argue with someone and have intense interactions with them, and also the strong emotions that we have to deal with related to the conflict, it's enough to leave us feeling utterly exhausted. And on top of all of that, conflict usually also damages relationships. Sometimes there's even permanent damage that can be done. Conflict is often like an acid that eats away at everything it comes into contact with. Uh, For example, perhaps you have uh, people in your family who still aren't talking to each other to this day because of something that happened years ago. Uh, To to be candid with you, uh, that's a reality in my own extended family. Like There are people in my extended family who aren't talking to each other because of something that happened over a decade ago. And in that kind of a situation, nobody really wins. I'm also reminded of conflicts that spill over into the courts and involve legal battles, whether it's a couple that gets divorced and then uh, battles over custody of the children, or whether it's adult siblings that are fighting with each other about who gets what from their parents' estate. More often than not, who really wins in those kinds of situations? Nobody wins, right? Except the lawyers, I guess. They typically do very well, uh, since everyone else is you know, paying large sums of money for their services. But even when money isn't involved in a conflict, everyone who's a part of it still ends up losing. They all experience the misery and the exhaustion and all the other harmful effects that conflict brings. And unfortunately, it's often a downward spiral where things get uglier and uglier and where people grow more and more resentful toward each other. You know, person A wrongs person B, so person B retaliates by wronging person A, and they just keep going back and forth like that in a vicious cycle with no end in sight. I'm reminded of what um, what, what the rafting guy guy told our group last time I went, what what a rafting. Uh, We were on the river, and right before we got to this class four or class five rapid, the the guide said that if you happen to fall into the water and and are stuck in this rapid, then watch out because the rapid will actually like suck you in and you'll just keep going around and around in the water in this endless cycle. Um, You won't be able to swim out of it. It'll, It'll trap you and just thrash you around back and forth in the water. The only way to get out of it would be to curl up into a ball And only then would the rapid 
spit you out. And uh, that's kind of the feeling of being trapped in that never-ending cycle is sometimes what it feels like to be involved in conflict. So how then can we escape that never-ending cycle and the downward spiral of interactions with others in which we sometimes feel trapped? Or to state it differently, how can we deal with conflict in a healthy way? Or even better, in a biblical way? Well, that's the subject that we'll be looking at this morning from Genesis 33. Now, to remind you of some background here, the previous chapters of Genesis record a man named Jacob uh, essentially stealing some very valuable privileges and blessings from his brother Esau. And Esau was so furious at what Jacob had done that he actively made plans to kill him. Fortunately, Jacob was able to escape and fled several hundred miles away and stayed away for over 20 years. And during that time, Jacob became very wealthy. However, one day, God told Jacob that it was time for him to return home to the land of Canaan. Now, by that point, Esau had moved slightly south of Canaan to a land called Seir. And so presumably, Jacob could have returned to Canaan without ever having to cross paths with his brother Esau or resolving the conflict that had torn them apart. However, Jacob decides that the time has come for him to be reconciled to his brother. So in Genesis 32, Jacob sends messengers to Esau telling him that he's on his way back to Canaan. And that's a good reminder for us that we shouldn't try to avoid dealing with conflict. Even though it might not be easy or comfortable or enjoyable, God calls us to deal with conflict in a direct way and to pursue reconciliation to the best of our ability. Now, it may not always be possible to achieve reconciliation since we can't control the behaviors of others, but as Romans 12:18 reminds us, if possible, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So as far as it depends on us, we should pursue peace with others to the best of our ability. And that involves being reconciled with people whom we've wronged and people who have wronged us. And that's what we see happening in our main passage of Genesis 33. After years of separation, Jacob and Esau are finally reconciled. That's the main idea of this passage. After years of separation, Jacob and Esau are finally reconciled. Now, the chapter begins with Jacob fearing for his life. Remember, the reason Jacob had left in the first place was because Esau was actively making plans to kill him. So for all Jacob knew, Esau could have been stewing on the situation for the past 20 years and growing even angrier over time. But not only that, in the previous chapter, Jacob's messengers had returned uh, with the report that Esau was coming out to meet him along with 400 of his men, <laughs> which 
kind of sounds like a small army. So Jacob's pretty anxious about meeting Esau and actually tells his servants to take a significant portion of his flocks and herds and go out ahead of him and meet Esau and, and, and give Esau the, the flocks and herds as a present. And that's where the story picks up in Genesis 33, 1 through 7. Look what it says. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom the Lord has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. So notice first the way in which Jacob humbles himself here. In verse 3, Jacob bows to the ground seven times before his brother Esau, which is uh, something people would typically do in the presence of a king, bowing down seven times. And also he has his family bow down as well. And it's also worth noting that this behavior is even more remarkable in light of the fact what God had previously stated to Jacob. Way back in Genesis 25, 23, God had said that the older shall serve the younger. That is, Esau shall serve Jacob. Not only that, but their father, uh, Isaac, had pronounced a prophetic blessing on Jacob and said to him in Genesis 27, 29, be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons, including Esau, bow down to you. So Jacob had been chosen by God to, in a sense, be greater than his brother Esau. Yet in our main passage, Jacob humbles himself before Esau in a notable and public way. And there's a very important lesson in that approach that we don't want to miss. Reconciliation begins with humility. And that humility is required of both parties, but especially of the one who's committed the wrongdoing. They have to humble themselves before the person they've wronged and confess their sin. Look at verses 8 through 10. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Now, obviously, these verses don't record Jacob verbalizing an explicit confession 
of his wrongdoing. We, we don't really know whether he made an explicit confession that's not recorded uh, or not. But we do at least see evidence of an implicit confession in verse 10, when Jacob marvels at the, how Esau has accepted him. The implication is that Jacob wasn't worthy of acceptance because of his wrongdoing. Yet regardless of whether or not Jacob explicitly confessed his sin to Esau or whether it was merely implicit, the fact remains that for us today, the Bible is very clear in in numerous places that we need to humble ourselves and confess to others very specifically the wrongs we've committed against them. And actually, the Bible says we need to not only confess our sins, but repent of our sins. Repentance uh, simply means turning away from something. And it involves repenting not just of the outward behavior, but also of the inward heart disposition that led to that behavior. The sin beneath the sin, if you will. Because the the outward behavior is really just the tip of the iceberg of what's really going on. The majority of it is happening within our hearts. So if you picture a tree, we need to go from the fruit to the root. The fruit is the outwardly visible behavior that's usually very obvious. And we need to repent of that outward behavior, but we also need to go beyond that and dig down into the root cause of that behavior within our hearts. Typically, this means repenting of what's often referred to as an idol within our hearts. Uh, An idol in this sense is anything that we're worshiping in place of God. So for example, when Jacob lied to his father, and stole the blessing from his brother, Um, back in Genesis 27, his outward sins were lying and stealing. But the root cause of those sins was Jacob's idolatrous desire for personal wealth and prestige and advancement. Similarly, whenever our behavior results in conflict with other people, There are almost always idolatrous desires lurking in our hearts as well. This is confirmed in James 4.1, which says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? So going from fruit to root here, the fruit is the outward conflict, while the root is the idolatrous desires of our hearts that have begun to control us. One author named Ken Sandy helpfully describes how this process works in his book, The Peacemaker. He calls it the progression of an idol. The first step is I desire. I desire. And this desire could be inherently sinful, such as greed or lust or a desire for revenge, or it could be a desire for something good, like 
peace and quiet, or respectful children, or professional success, or a loving spouse. But what if someone stands in the way of us getting what we desire? Well, that's when conflict starts to develop. Because instead of trusting God and responding to the situation in a loving and biblical way, we often allow our desire to dominate our lives and therefore selfishly fight to obtain what we desire, even if it means acting in an unloving and unbiblical way toward others. In other words, our desire, even if it was a good desire at first, becomes a demand, which is the second step in the progression of an idol. I desire becomes I demand. Instead of just wanting something, we become intent on getting because we think that we need it in order to be happy. It's now something we believe is worth obtaining at just about any cost. This then leads to the third step, which is I judge. When other people stand in the way of us getting what we desire, we begin to condemn them in our hearts. We begin to operate with the assumption that we're superior to them. And we allow our hearts to become bitter and resentful against them. We also tend to assume things about their motives that may or may not be true. Yet perhaps the most telling sign that we've begun to judge someone is that we've stopped loving them and being concerned about their welfare. And then the final step is I punish. And this is where what's been happening within our hearts manifests itself externally. We seek to punish those who stand in the way of our idolatrous desires being satisfied. And this punishment can take a wide variety of different forms. Perhaps we lash out with harsh words, or even in some extreme circumstances, in physical violence. Or maybe we take a more indirect approach and let's say, try to make someone feel bad by sulking around. Or maybe we just withdraw from the relationship and, and give someone the so-called silent treatment. I mean, there are plenty of different ways in which we seek to punish other people. So that's the progression of an idol, right? It goes from I desire to I demand to I judge to I punish. And repentance involves turning away from that entire progression. It's not enough just to repent of the outward behavior. We also have to repent of the idolatrous desires within our hearts that led to that outward behavior. So just to review, whenever we find ourselves involved in a conflict with other people, we need to take a step back. And think about the ways in which we ourselves have contributed to that conflict. 
even if it's perhaps the majority that are the other person's fault, chances are there's a way that we have contributed as well. And if there is any way at all in which we've contributed to the conflict, then we need to go from fruit to root and examine our hearts for the idolatrous desires that have been controlling our behavior. And we then need to repent of it all, turning away not only from the sinful behaviors, but also from those idolatrous desires. And in the context of conflict with others, this repentance needs to be verbalized. Now, obviously, repentance begins with repenting privately to God, but we also need to express the repentance verbally to the people who have been affected by our sin. Um, Thankfully, uh, Ken Sandy, who I referred to a few moments ago, also gives us some advice for this as well. He calls it the seven A's of confession. First, he says, address everyone involved. If you've done something that's affected more than one person, then everyone who's been affected needs to hear your confession. So the the circle of confession should be as wide as the circle of offense. Uh, I remember in a a church I used to attend, there was a guy, I didn't really know him that well, but he apparently had a bit of a temper. And right after the worship gathering one Sunday, he just blew up on someone else in the church. And a lot of people in the church saw it. And so the next Sunday, he got up in front of the whole church and apologized uh, for the way he had handled himself. And I thought that was, was very appropriate for, for him to do. Um, so uh, address everyone involved. Number two, avoid if, but, and maybe. Those are the words you absolutely do not uh, want to say in a, an apology or a confession. You know, I'm really not the brightest crayon in the box when it comes to like social intelligence and things like that. But even I know that if I say those words in a confession to my wife, it's probably not going to go very well for me, right? Honey, I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings, but, (laughs) you know, you're, you're just so sensitive sometimes, right? So not the best thing to say. If you use one of those words, you've pretty much invalidated everything else that you've said in that confession. So avoid those words, if, but, and maybe. The number three, admit your wrongdoing specifically. It's not enough for you to just apologize for, you know, everything I've done against you or all of the boneheaded decisions I've made. Show them. You understand exactly what those boneheaded decisions were and why you need to be sorry for them. They know what you did, but they need to know that you know what you did. And number four, acknowledge the hurt. Put yourself in their shoes and ask yourself, how must they be feeling? And then say something that shows you understand. Show that you understand how your actions harmed that person, and show some remorse for the pain and difficulty you've caused. And then number five, accept the consequences. Accept that it may take some time for you to earn back that person's full level of trust. 
Also accept responsibility for any material damage you've done and be willing to make restitution for that, just as Jacob made restitution to Esau in Genesis 33 in the form of the material gifts he gave to Esau. Actions have consequences, and if you're really sorry, a good way to show your sincerity is by accepting those consequences. After that, number six is to alter your behavior. Have you ever had someone do something against you and apologize for it, but then turn around five seconds later and do pretty much the exact same thing? (laughs) And then maybe the second offense was followed by a second apology, but then, lo and behold, it happens again. I'm guessing after two or three cycles of that, you're probably not going to take their apology very seriously. If you're really sorry, you'll change your behavior. Then finally, number seven, ask forgiveness. You need to directly and specifically ask the person's forgiveness for what you've done. Now, keep in mind that depending on how serious the offense was, it may take some time for them to be ready to forgive. You know, in the book of Genesis, Esau certainly wasn't ready to forgive Jacob right when Jacob stole the blessing from him, right? He was plotting Jacob's demise, in fact. Uh, but <laughs> I guess after he had a 20-year cooldown period, uh, he was finally ready. Now, hopefully, it doesn't take anywhere close to 20 years uh, for someone to be willing to forgive you. That's actually not uh, pleasing to God at all. That would be uh, a sin in itself um, by re- remaining bitter for that period of time. But it's very reasonable for someone to need a little bit of time, at least, before they're ready to forgive. And so for a more significant offense, don't expect someone to be ready to fully forgive you and move on with life five seconds after you ask. But you do need to ask. And that leads us to something else we see in Genesis 33 related to conflict resolution that's very important for us to discuss. So up until now, we've been focusing on what to do in the aftermath of our own sins. But there's also plenty to learn here about responding to the sins of others and specifically to the ways they've sinned against us. According to Genesis 33, our ultimate response to people who have sinned against us is to forgive them. That's what it needs to be, to forgive them. In fact, I'd say this is probably the most significant thing that we see in this chapter. The forgiveness Esau extends to Jacob here is both unexpected and pretty remarkable. In verse 4, we read about the first thing Esau does when he sees his brother Jacob. It says, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. In spite of everything Jacob had done against Esau, most of which was permanent and and couldn't be undone, Esau demonstrates an incredible willingness to forgive Jacob without any harsh words, 
or attempts to get even or anything. He even tries to convince Jacob to keep the gifts he had brought in order to make restitution. Verse 9, it says, But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And that disposition is a wonderful example for us. God calls us to forgive other people. In fact, he commands it. So what exactly then is forgiveness? What does it mean to forgive someone? And actually, before we get into what forgiveness is, it might be helpful to first discuss what forgiveness is not. So first of all, forgiveness is not a feeling. Instead, it's something we do. It's an act of our will and a commitment that we make. So it's not a feeling. In addition, forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgetting is a passive process in which something fades from our memory, while forgiveness, on the other hand, is very active. Then finally, forgiveness is not excusing a sin. When we forgive someone, we're not saying that what they did wasn't wrong. Like, we're not saying that what they did was okay. So what is forgiveness then? Well, if you'll allow me to refer to our good friend, Ken Sandy, one more time, he lists what he calls the four promises of forgiveness. Four things. First, I will not dwell on this incident. I won't keep thinking about it and replaying it in slow motion over and over in my mind. Second, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. (laughs) I'm sure none of you who are married have ever done anything like that in your marriage, right? Uh, Bringing up something that your spouse did a few weeks ago or months ago or even a few years ago as ammunition for a current argument? Of course not. And third, I will not talk to others about this incident. That would be gossip. And finally, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. In other words, I'm not going to give you the silent treatment or hold you at arm's length because of this. So when we forgive someone, these are the four promises that we're making. Again, forgiveness isn't a feeling, but rather a collection of promises that we're making about these four things. However, as helpful as all of these kinds of lists can be, they only get us so far. Because it's one thing to have a list like this, but it's quite another for our hearts to be softened toward others, and and for us to be in a place where we're ready to extend this kind of forgiveness. So what can we do when we struggle to find it within ourselves to forgive someone else? Well, I'd like to suggest that the answer actually isn't looking within ourselves, but rather looking to God for the ability to forgive, and specifically to consider the way in which God has forgiven us. 
In Matthew 18, 23 through 33, Jesus tells a parable. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So that would be millions of dollars. And since he could not pay, he, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. So that would be just a few dollars. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay off the debt. When his fellow servants saw that what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? That's a great question, isn't it? Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? You know, when we think about the way God's forgiven us, like, how could we not forgive other people? The fact is that our sins against God are far more appalling. You know, they, they've been committed against a holy God, remember. So our sins against God are far more appalling than anything others have done against us. And yet, God had mercy on us, didn't he? He sent his own son, Jesus, to come to this earth and atone for our sins in his death on the cross. Like Jesus voluntarily suffered the agonies of the cross in our place and to pay for our sin. Now think about that. Like Jesus didn't just forgive us of our sins. He actually loved us so much that he died in our place. He endured God the Father's judgment so we wouldn't have to. Then three days later, he resurrected from the dead so that he now stands ready to save everyone who will put their trust in him for rescue. So if God has forgiven us in such a stunning and magnificent way, how could we ever withhold forgiveness from someone else? It's with this in mind that the Apostle Paul tells his readers in Colossians 3.13 to embrace a lifestyle of, quote, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. He then declares emphatically, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also 
must forgive. So if we want to be able to forgive others, well, that begins with remembering the way in which God has forgiven us. The forgiveness God's shown us in the gospel is really the key to escaping the downward spiral of conflict and bitterness and resentment in which we sometimes find ourselves trapped. And you know, maybe you're here this morning and you've never experienced this forgiveness that God offers you. If that's you, and if you want freedom from the bitterness that's found its way into your heart, just know that that freedom is found in Jesus. When you experience his forgiveness toward you, then you'll discover that you have an ability that you've never had before to extend forgiveness toward other people. So in light of everything that we've talked about this morning, I'd like to invite us all to take a moment and ask ourselves these two questions. Who do I need to ask forgiveness from? And who do I need to extend forgiveness to? Who do I need to ask forgiveness from? And who do I need to extend forgiveness to? And if there's anyone the Holy Spirit brings to your attention, why not start pursuing reconciliation in that relationship, even this very day?